The following sermon was uploaded to Sermon Audio by Bible Baptist Church in McMinnville, Oregon. And now here with this week's message is Pastor Sean Magoon. All right, bringing people to Jesus is our title and our text is found in John chapter 1 verses 35 through 51. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there. It would do you much good to look at the text rather than just at this little loudmouth preacher. <laughs> General William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army, and he could never be accused of mincing words or <clears throat> doing things half-heartedly. And he said that he believed that if he could hold each young Salvation Army officer over hell for a few minutes, he would never have trouble keeping them motivated about being witnesses to Christ. I thought about that. Should we really have to be held over hell in order to be motivated to tell people about Jesus? And the answer is no. Now, the question is, is hell a motivation for evangelism? The answer is yeah. Yet I would also think that heaven is an even greater motivation. But greater than even hell or heaven is what? The glory of? Okay, And so Jesus says, follow me, which includes learning from him and submitting to him. So when we say a disciple, it's one who learns, one who follows. But you don't just learn in order to get a big fat head. You submit your life to him. And one of his commands is, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Mark 16, 15. And he also said this in in Matthew 4, verse 19. Follow me, I love this, and I will, I put emphasis, I will make you fishers of men. And so, to catch people for Christ. How are you doing at that? How am I doing at that? To catch people for Christ, you've got to stick close to him. Amen? Think of it. Think of the impact that Jesus made. Somebody, there's a long statement. Josh McDowell had this big, long statement. I'll just give you three of them. He never wrote a book, yet more books have been written about him than any other person in history. Interesting. He never never traveled very far, yet more people have traveled the globe on his behalf than any other person who lived. In fact, all of history is dated from his entry, his birth into the world, from heaven. Well, let me ask this. What was his method? He called a few men to himself, and these few men would be used to change the course of history for the next 20 centuries. And remember, John's writing his gospel. We saw it in chapter 20, verse 31, that we, you and I, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Son of God. He's, he is one with the Father, right, in nature and in being. And that by believing, we may have life in his name, in Christ's name. And so, because every disciple becomes a witness, what is that? A living, verbal declaration that Jesus is God. Okay, we got got to talk about this. And, And in the weeks to come, we will. What's the difference between a Christian and a Muslim? It's a great question. What's the difference between a Christian and a Orthodox Jew who doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah? We got to talk about it. I don't know. What's the difference between a Christian and New Age? We've got to talk about it. We'll get even more nuance. What's the difference between a Christian and a Catholic? Are there some Catholics that are Christian? Yeah. But there's, there's some that are not. Are there some Protestants that are not Christians? Yeah. But here's the point. Every disciple becomes a witness, a living verbal declaration that Jesus is God. Because of that, John adds one witness, right, on top of another witness to build a case to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. In a sense, then, John is like a lawyer, the Apostle John, in a court of, and he's presenting his evidence, right? And, and what truth am I drawing from this text? As Jesus chose the disciples to follow him and he used them to spread the gospel, so he chooses and uses believers today to do the same, Right? The passage, then, is both a witness to Jesus as the Son of God and the Son of Man, as well as a great encouragement for us to go out and bring people to him for salvation. 
So we got two points, and they're really simple. I'm going to stick to the text. First, we're called to point people to Jesus as God's lamb, verses 35 through 42. That's what John the Baptist was doing. Notice what it says. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the lamb of God. And so he sees Jesus walking without any followers, and he directs his own disciples to follow Jesus. Question, where was John the Baptist's focus? Exactly, the same place our focus should be, on Christ. It's so simple that to effectively point others to Jesus, we must diligently keep our eyes on Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, we're not told the results the first time that John cries out in verse 29, and yet he keeps on preaching. What's what's the the, the lesson? You don't give up on anybody until they're dead. Amen? You just patiently, repeatedly preach, teach, share the message of Jesus' sacrificial death. Question, did the walls of Jericho fall down the first time they surrounded the city? No. No. It's the constant dropping of water that wears away the stone. And and Isaiah 55, uh, uh, 11 says that God promises his word will accomplish his purpose for which he sends it. But it doesn't say it's going to happen the first time. Isn't that true? Well, we we don't like that. I want to see instant results. Well... How effective was John the Baptist's ministry? Well, the the true, uh, we say the proof's in the pudding, but but the religious leaders rejected him. Remember, Jesus said, was John the Baptist from heaven or just from man? They wouldn't answer because they didn't receive John's witness. The crowds were attracted to him for a time, but then after he gets thrown in prison, not so much after that. Unless you want a prison ministry. Right, But only a few were really affected. There were only a few were really changed by his message. Listen, when God sends us out in the world, Christian, the religious leaders may look on us with suspicion. The crowds may be looking for the new and the sensational. But there only may be a few people that are convicted in their hearts and actually changed. But it's those few people who God will use to reach others. Let me give you a simple definition of evangelism. Each one, reach one. You want an even simpler definition of discipleship? Each one, teach one. It's pretty simple, isn't it? If each one reach one, instead of looking Sean and Magoon to do all the evangelism discipleship, we pay you, pastor, get her done. No. Think of how different the church would be. No, I would say this. Think of how different the world would be. That's Jesus' method. Each one, reach one, each one, teach one. And then notice the content of John's message. He said, behold the Lamb of God. And so he understands that man's most difficult first problem is his barrier to God is sin. And so John keeps hammering away at the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ on the cross who takes away the sin of the world. Remember, we saw that in verse 29 two weeks ago. And so must we. Why? The world, those who do not believe, see the cross as weak and foolish, Paul says. But we who are being saved know it as the power of God unto salvation. Oh, how powerful are the words about Jesus' work on the cross. They are the power. They are the wisdom of God to everyone who believes, but they are foolishness to those who perish. Two disciples, probably one of them, the writer of the gospel, the apostle John, heard John the Baptist speak. And so what do we get from that? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And what was the result? They followed Jesus. Now, this is fascinating because this is the first words we have of Jesus in John's gospel. He turns and he sees them following. And so uh, he, he's humble. He's approachable. We need to know that. 
But it wasn't enough for them just to hear about Jesus from John the Baptist, just like it's not enough for you to hear about Jesus from the, this pulpit. You and I must what? Follow him. And so what is discipleship? Simply, it's a commitment of your life, my life to Jesus, where we pour out our heart to him. We have a personal relationship with him. And it's not until we are doing that that we will tell other people. We will feel compelled, constrained. Paul says, uh, the love of Christ, I I love uh, the Phillips, leaves us no choice. We're compelled, we're constrained to tell other people about Jesus. Think of that. Well, what's interesting is Jesus knew their hearts perfectly, so his question, what are you seeking, was for their benefit, not his. Amen? I, I love that. In other words, what he's saying is, what are you really after? And, and uh, I think it was, I'm trying to remember, William Barclay, and he goes through these different groups. Uh, were they like the Pharisees who just wanted to debate about the law? Or were they like the Sadducees who just wanted position and status? Or were they like the Zealots who wanted a temporal ruler to overthrow the Romans? Or were they like the crowds who just wanted to be healed and fed and see miracles? They wanted a Burger King. Or did they sense their need of Jesus because, now listen to this, they'd been stripped of their self-righteousness and they were sick of their sin, you see. Perhaps then Jesus was asking, think, think this through with me, are you ready for me to make you what I want you to be? Interesting. Jesus did not ask this question of Judas, who was in it just for the money, chapter 12, verse 6, and betrayed Jesus in the end. Why would he ask him that? He already knew. He said, well, he wanted Judas to search his heart. He didn't pray for Judas, although he prayed for Peter. We'll see that as we go through John's gospel. But, but let me not digress. How would you answer the question, what are you seeking? It reveals our spiritual condition. Is it because we want health or wealth or popularity or power? I want to be a celebrity preacher. You know, pack them in. And then pack more in. We can have two, three, four service. How about a Saturday night service? And then I can wear my fancy $300, $400 sneakers and buy my, my, my Mercedes or whatever it is, you know, and my, be- my Beamer. Really? How about this? Do we want our conscience soothed? I just want to feel better. Sometimes I do that. I pray so I can feel better. I confess. I'll read my Bible so I can feel better. Do we want just to appease the spouse? Well, she just keeps nagging, and so I got to go to church. Or how about this? We want our kids to turn out right. What is your my heart set on? Is it Jesus himself? Question really, are you following Jesus? And if so, why? Why? Is it because you love him? Because he first loved you? Interesting Is it because you want to learn at his feet and know him more intimately? The question is this. Is it Jesus or is it something or someone else? The prodigal. He said, Dad, I want my inheritance. And what did he mean? I wish you were dead so I can get my stuff. And the older brother was no better. He never killed a fat calf for me. So I can go celebrate with my friends. I don't care about you. I just want to be with them. Ooh, and out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth, what, speaks. Now, the two disciples showed by their answer were, are you staying, they said, that they long to be with who? Jesus. In other words, what they were saying in a sense then is, we like to be able to talk with you alone, away from everybody else when you have time. Think about your relationship with Jesus. Do you talk with him? Do you walk with him? But notice his answer, verse 39, come and you will see. I love it that I don't need to make an appointment with Jesus. He's always got time for me, amen? 
He never disappoints the heart that longs for him. He assured them of his welcome, and they came, and they saw him with spiritual eyes. And Jesus is saying, even today, this afternoon, he's saying to you, come, and you will see. And he stands, and what? Knocks at the door of your life, and he's saying, open up your heart to me, and, and I'll, you, you, I'll sup with you. You have fellowship with me. And the Father and I will come, and we'll make our abode. We'll live inside you. Amazing, John 14. And John says it was about the 10th hour. Uh, People debate, is this Jewish time or Roman time? I'll let you work it out. They they usually counted from 6 o'clock in the morning, which would have been 4 p.m. But here's the question. You look at the text. Why did John even mention the time of day? I mean, because the day was the dividing line. It was the time when he met Jesus Christ, and that changed what? Everything, his life. Yeah, and Jesus made such an impact that he remembered the exact hour. Listen, what's the the truth in the text? It's so simple. That salvation is a historical fact. It's not a process. I'll meet some people, and I'll go, hey, when did you become a Christian? Oh, I was always a Christian. Hello, Betty. No, you weren't. We're all born in what? Tell me. Sin. Fast bound in sin and nature's night, right? We, we thought last week, I diffused a quickening ray. The dungeon flame with, yeah. So it may take time for the Holy Spirit to bring you to Christ, but when it happens, you'll know it, and most likely you'll remember it. And so they spent the rest of the day with Jesus. Now here's what's profound about this text. What they in the Old Testament waited centuries and even millennia to experience, you and I have available to us every moment of every day communion or fellowship with Jesus Christ here's a question take it as you want but I'll just let the penny drop do we use that privilege wisely or do we take it for granted that I can pray without what ceasing that I can live in the very presence of God because there's a man in glory And then one of the followers of Jesus was Andrew, who found his brother, and Simon Peter, and brought him to Jesus, verses 40 through 42. And Andrew's known throughout John's gospel. I would love to just do a sermon on this, but he's known for bringing people to Jesus. And why? Well, because he's tasted that the Lord is good, and he couldn't rest until those who are nearest and dearest to him had tasted Jesus too, experientially, Okay. And so we don't convince people about Jesus. We pray and we simply trust that the Holy Spirit will work in that person's heart through the message we share with them. That's how people are brought into saving contact with Jesus. What's interesting about this text is, you got to think, these are brothers. (laughs) Sometimes we have sibling rivalry. You know, I could tell you about my family and you wouldn't want to hear it. But you've got to use your imagination. Sometimes people don't do this. We don't use our sanctified imagination. Okay? Sanctified. What do I mean? Can you imagine the deep satisfaction of Andrew's heart later on when Peter was being used by the Lord to catch thousands of people for Jesus? Can you imagine um, the day of Pentecost and he saw Peter preaching and 3,000 people were saved? And he could have said, I had something to do with that. Jesus actually used me to bring him to Jesus. And now look what Jesus is doing in and through him. Listen, I am sure that Andrew remembered this day with great joy. And so the text is simple. You ready? Telling others of and bringing them to Jesus is one of the greatest privileges we have as Christians. There's nothing that compares with it. Amen? Well, you say fellowship with Jesus. Yeah, you could be careful here because it's all one seamless fabric. We're not to pit fellowship against service because if you're trying to serve him without the fellowship, you're in trouble, amen? All right. But if you say, well, I'm just going to fellowship, but I'll never tell anybody about it. How can you do that? If you love somebody, you've got to talk about them, amen? You just got got to think it through. And so, and where does that start? Telling others with family members, those who are nearest and dearest to our heart. It doesn't stop there, though. We got folks with whom we share the most contact. Who are they? Friends, 
relatives, acquaintances, and neighbors. Frangelism. Friends, relatives, acquaintances, and neighbors. Frangelism. But I want you to notice something. Andrew was a new believer, wasn't he? You mean he didn't take any courses in evangelism? He didn't read any books. Interesting. It's been said that the early church was told to shut up while the contemporary church has to be told to speak up. <laughs> Something's not right, amen? Okay, let me, I was reading this story and it's fascinating. A man visited another country but he didn't know the language, and so he went over their short-term missions, whatever, and he noticed, he was fascinated by their evangelistic technique. They were sharing Jesus with people, and people were getting saved. But he didn't know what they were doing because he didn't know the language. And so he asked a young pastor about it, and the pastor gave him a quizzical look and said, we tell them they are sinners until they believe it, and then we tell them Christ died for sinners. It's as simple as that. And so I'm asking, why is it that evangelism tends to wane the longer a person is a believer? I'm asking. Andrew had just heard about Jesus, and he's bringing people to Jesus. We would call it the direct approach. Amen? John Calvin said this, Woe to our apathy if we, who are more fully enlightened than, than he, that is Andrew, do not try to make others share in the same grace. He's right. True biblical saving grace loves to share Jesus with others. Here's a question I have. I'm just going to ask, and I know I asked it before. How can we keep the greatest news ever to ourselves? Now, here's a, here's, a, here's a bypass medals that we could go off on for five, ten minutes. By the way, many people will listen to a friend or relative that won't ever come here and listen to a sermon. It's true. You can have a greater influence and impact than I can. No, you're the preacher. It's, no, I, you got to get that. Personal evangelism. And then notice Andrew says, we have found the Messiah. Now, that's kind of funny, isn't it? Who found who, amen? The Father had really drawn them to Jesus first. How? The Holy Spirit had convicted them of their sin. We'll see that later in John, that order. And Andrew is stating the outward response that we see, not God's prior secret inward working that we don't see. In John 15, 16, he said, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Now, if you look at verse 42, a whole sermon could be done on this. He brought him to Jesus, to Pete, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, the word for rock in Aramaic, right? And so Jesus knows what Peter is like naturally. He's the man with the foot-shaped mouth, right? You ever, you ever, you ever step in it and say something you shouldn't have said like the toothpaste comes out of the tube and you can't get it back in <laughs> Peter was impulsive he was unstable he was impetuous and rash somebody said he was like a marshmallow easily influenced by others opinions and always reacting adversely to situations around him and yet Jesus says I know all about you Simon but Jesus doesn't stop there why? He's full of grace and truth. That's what John says earlier in, in this chapter. He knows all about him. He's full of grace and truth, and he gives Simon a new name. Why? Because the name shows what Jesus will make of Peter by his grace. He will make someone different from what Peter was right then. Peter, or Cephas, means a stone, the rock man of steady influence to and support for others. What's the truth of the text? It's so simple. We become steady and firm and consistent in following Jesus only by his grace. Not by our grit. Not because you woke up on the right side of the bed. Not because you got a lot of money. Not because you got the right job. Not because you're married or unmarried. Not because you got children or children or grandchildren. 
Not by, we could go on and on. Not by what you drive. Not by your identity politics. I'll say it. You either know Jesus or you don't. Amen? It's by his grace. Interesting. We become steady and firm and consistent in following Jesus only by his grace, which means what? His favor. His power. Listen, since God sees what he will make of you in his time and in his way, your life must not be based on your past experiences. I'm going to get excited. I say it. The windshield's bigger than the rearview mirror. But I will meet people that can't get past their past. You know what I mean? I said it when we preached. I was reading my old sermon. Even Jesus had skeletons in his family closet. Read the genealogy in Matthew 1. Read it. He was sinless, but he he came into the world through a sinful line, didn't he? Without any sin. We got to talk about that on Christmas. And so the point of the text is real simple. It's God's call and his transforming grace that makes us what we are, who we are by the grace of God. God, by his gospel, changes people from the inside out. And by listening then to and following Jesus, you and I will be made a a person of unconquerable courage. We will overcome the world. Why? Because he did. And what does that look like in Revelation? You keep following, even if they kill you. You're going to take away my life? You're going to send me to heaven? Amen. Isn't it true? And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. And the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto death. Revelation 12.10. Read it. And by the way, Peter was a foundational stone in the church, but not the foundation itself as the Roman Catholics teach. Jesus himself is the one foundation and chief cornerstone. Peter is an instrument, an apostle of the Lord Jesus. And so we point people to Jesus as the Lamb of God. Secondly, we need to realize that the Lord calls different people in different ways. Look at verses 43 through 51 and we're done. I want you to notice from the text the different means God uses in the passage. First, Andrew and John were drawn through John the Baptist preaching. So somebody's going to be hearing little loudmouth Sean Magoon preaching or Dan or other preachers, Bill, Pastor Bill, or others, and they're going to be drawn to Jesus. Peter, on the other hand, and Nathaniel were brought to Jesus by a brother and a friend. Thirdly, Philip was found directly by the Lord himself. There was no human instrument used. What's the truth of the text? Do not try to box God in and live in him to one means. That's what we do. He isn't tied to any one certain method of drawing people to Jesus. Nor has God reached the end of his resources because some preachers are unfaithful to their calling or some believers are too apathetic or anxious or afraid to bring people to Jesus. Okay, and now when you say, I could hear somebody's objection, doesn't that, does that mean then that uh, it's okay for preachers to be unfaithful? No. Does that mean it's okay for believers to be apathetic? No. no. And anxious and afraid? No, no, no. Yet it's important to remember that whether he uses an instrument, a human instrument or not, it's Jesus who draws us to himself. It's Jesus who seeks us out. Because he came to save and to seek and save that which was lost, Luke 19.10. It was Jesus who chose us and sought after us when we weren't even looking for him. I could tell you in my life, he kept sending people. And I kept telling them to hit the road, Jack, and don't you come back no more, no more. But he kept sending them. I couldn't get away from these crazy Christians. I could tell you. They were, like, they were like ants right now in our house. They were everywhere you go. <laughs> Jesus, he, 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 his direct quickening voice sovereignly called Philip. He said, follow me. So we need to pray that the Holy Spirit would accompany the gospel that we are sharing, we're preaching with power 
as, as we preach, as we share it with other people. The Holy Spirit acts in his own sovereign way with each person. So, so the, the, the text is pointing out that how we come, right, is not the issue. The real question is, were we really given God's saving grace? And how would you know? Did you and I turn from our sins? Are we now relying completely on Jesus to save us? Are we seeking to live a holy life? Do we love God and his people and even our enemies? Yikes! Those are some of the marks of true conversion. And so true Christianity is following Jesus, devoting ourselves to his way of life that's clearly mapped out in his word. Now notice the text. It says that Philip was from Bethsaida, which actually uh, means the house of fishermen. And so these were ordinary men whom God chose to use. And so what we could say from drawing from this, that ordinary people make good disciples. Do you ever get bored with your ordinary life? Boy, a whole sermon could be done on that. Don't be discouraged by your limitations, Christian. Just do whatever piece of service God has has for you. And what made the difference for these ordinary men was that they had been called by Jesus and that they spent time with him. When you look at the book of Acts in chapter 4 and verse 13, it says they, they noticed they were uneducated, but then it says they noticed they had, they had been with who? Jesus. One of my favorite verses is John 3, uh, 22, where it says, and he was spending time with them. Jesus spent time with his disciples. Now, what's fascinating about this is Matthew 11, Jesus denounces Bethsaida because he had done most of his miracles there, and yet they didn't repent and believe. So here were these men who were from a wicked town, but they were part of the remnant according to the choice of God's grace, his election. And his grace was magnified not only by snatching them from a wicked place, but also by appointing them as apostles. That's profound to me. We sing it sometimes. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Amen? Here's a question when I ask, I look at this text. When does effective evangelism begin? When? The moment you're what? Saved. At conversion. And how does Christianity expand? Notice the text. Philip found Nathaniel. So, new followers of Jesus find someone, bear witness of Jesus to them, uh, who in turn then become disciples and start following Jesus, and they repeat the process. They find others, bear witness to Jesus, and they become followers, and the beat goes on. So, what we find, Philip has a desire to build God's kingdom just as Andrew did, and as a result of being with Jesus, he cannot remain silent or indifferent. And we, just like he did, are to enthusiastically tell others about Jesus. Now, notice what he does. He comes and he finds Nathaniel. Uh, this, the whole sermon, you know, it's, it's so great. He found Nathaniel and he said to him, We have found him who Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel said, Can any good come, anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. And so Philip seems to have been familiar with some of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah, but Nathanael was not aware of any prophecies which linked the Messiah with Nazareth. You say, well, he should be called a Nazarene. You go back in the Old Testament, you cannot find that anywhere. <laughs> what does Matthew mean when he's talking about it? It's a really good question, and the commentators went that away, actually. But at the same time, to make matters even worse, there was a rivalry between Nathaniel's hometown of Cana and the town of Nazareth. And so what is the text saying? We need to be aware of preconceived ideas that could keep us from Jesus. And Philip also referred to Jesus as the son of Joseph, which is how he was known among the people, but in reality, Jesus is God's son. 
What's the lesson here? It's so simple that new believers as well as old believers can make blunders while witnessing to people. And yet, are you listening? God in his grace can and does still use us to bring people to Jesus in spite of all our blunders. There's a sermon titled, The Wonders of Our Blunders, you know. Um, But it's to our advantage to be well acquainted with the scriptures and especially to see Jesus in them. One man, Rolock, he said this, I would rather a man should stammer and babble about Christ, providing he does it sincerely and from his heart, and has before him the object of the glory of God and the salvation of men, than say many things eloquently about Christ for ostentation and vainglory, end quote. That's a great quote, by the way. Now, here's what you can expect. You want to know what to expect? You say, well, the stock market's going up or down, Sean. What do you think? <laughs> Listen, you can expect many objections when you're trying to bring people to who? Jesus. And many people will hide behind the smoke screens in their sins. How are we to deal with them? Well, we learned from Philip three things. You ready? First, realize that you don't have to know all the answers. Amen? That's one of the reasons we don't tell people about Jesus. They're going to give me, they're going to tie me up with some question. Can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? You know what I'm talking about. What about science? You mean science or science fiction? Good question. You don't have to have all the answers. Second, you ready? Before you be used by God. Second, don't begin to argue with the person. Don't even begin to argue with them. Don't go there. We said it before when we were on the the sermon, what was it, on uh, peace and goodness and kindness. Never make it about you. Never make it what? Personal. Don't let it get personal. Point them to who? Jesus. We, We saw that a couple weeks ago. John, John said, it's not about me, John the Baptist. It's about the one I'm pointing to. You want to make it about me? I won't let you. Amen? Third, tell them to test Jesus for themselves. Philip said, come and see. Boldly let that person know, hey, you're never going to know the power and value of the cross until you honestly examine the truth about Jesus in the Bible. There's the evidence. This is kind of like creation in a sense. You look at, 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 at creation and it says there's a creator. Amen? You look at the Bible, you check the evidence out. You know what I will take to people a lot of times to? Resurrection. Who else rose from the dead? Who else's tomb is empty? Really? And, and then after you are bringing them to the word of God, you pray and you trust God to bless his word in his own good time. Somebody said this, very few are moved by reasoning and argument. Even fewer are frightened into salvation. But many, in fact, all can be invited to come and meet Jesus themselves. If you say, that's crazy, preacher. He's not here in the flesh. How can I bring him to Jesus? As you share with them in his word, and the Spirit makes Jesus real to people, they will know that he's alive. Question, how did you get saved? Well, it can't happen with so-and-so. You don't know my relatives. I could hear, I could see God scratching his head, if he had a head, or Jesus scratching his head, stroking his beard. Yeah, I can't do anything with Aunt Mildred. She's beyond hope. (laughs) You're laughing, aren't you? But you think about it. You think about the one person in your life that will never get saved. Maybe a child or a grandchild. Maybe the neighbor. Maybe the boss. I don't know, maybe the president, however you want to go, or the president-elect, whichever. Think about it, Christian. And then then notice how Jesus commends Nathanael in verse 47. Notice, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Interesting. No deceit. He's not flattering him or puffing him up. He's just showing him that he knew his heart completely. We'll see that at the end of chapter 2, which means that Jesus also knew of Nathaniel's objection. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Verse 46. But notice that Jesus doesn't even mention his objection. I love that. You know, that's what we do sometimes. Somebody's got a negative 
criticism and, and objection, and we focus on that. We're sin sniffers. <laughs> What's that I smell? Something stinks around here. We got a critical spirit. And we're focused on the negative. He didn't do that. He didn't do it. And then also, notice, Nathaniel had no guile. It doesn't mean that he's without guilt or that he's sinless. No, but he's a straightforward guy. He was a true Old Testament believer awaiting the Messiah's coming. And the word for guile or uh, deceit, it, it, it meant bait for fish or a snare before it came to mean deceit. And, and the context here, verse 51, shows that Jesus is thinking about Jacob in the Old Testament who came with deceit and stole his brother Esau's blessing. Genesis 27, 35. And what Jesus is saying, let's get to it simply. Nathaniel is all Israel and no Jacob. He is a man of integrity of heart in God's eyes. He's trustworthy with other people. He's got a sincere heart, not a crafty one. He's got a heart which God's grace alone can give. And we need to pray that God would give us an honest, sincere, childlike willingness to follow the truth wherever it leads us. Do you hear me? To use all the light God has given us in his word, in our conscience, in our mind, to have a simple, wholehearted desire to be guided and and taught and led by the Holy Spirit. And then Nathaniel wants to know, In verse 48, how does Jesus know him? Look what he says. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And so it's believed that in the shades of the fig tree uh, was used for prayer and meditating on scripture. And if that's true, and it probably is, Nathanael's the opposite of the pharisaical hypocrites who love to pray in public streets and marketplaces. And what is Jesus doing? He's displaying his omniscience. What is that? That he knows how much? He knows all things. He's just displaying that to Nathaniel, right? He had seen Nathaniel in secret, and, and Nathaniel wants to know how. How'd you see me? The text is really beautiful. Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. I wonder, does that cause you to get the ibby-jibbies when you sin and you know he's watching you? Interesting. That's a horror to unbelievers. It's a comfort to believers. I say, oh, that we would desire to know him more. Let me ask you this. Did Nathaniel think that he was alone under the fig tree? Was he? Question. Do you ever think that you're alone when no one's around one of my favorite verses, John 16, 32, you will all forsake me and go away. And he said, I am alone, but never alone. What did he mean? The father's what? With me. How many times? All the time. Listen, know that Jesus' eye is on you for good, Christian. Proverbs says the eyes of the Lord are in every place. Now, here's what's beautiful about this. You've got to see sovereign grace, that God had prepared Nathaniel's heart. And how do we know? Because Nathaniel comes to Jesus. And at Jesus' simple words, Nathaniel believes there's not one miracle done. Isn't that true? There were lots of people, multitudes, who followed Jesus. You know, they saw miracles and, and they ended up concluding he was doing it by the power of, of, of Satan, Beelzebub. But what's the difference here? He hears the word and he's effectually what? Drawn to Jesus. You know what the difference is? It's the sovereignty of God's grace. A lot of people don't do that. They don't, they don't like that. Sovereignty and God's grace. Sorry, you just destroyed the so-called free will of man. I will tell you, if Jesus could tell Lazarus to come forth from the dead, then he could certainly give spiritual life to sinners. Hey, I, amen. I got one. Amen. You, I went, like saying, sick him to a bulldog when you say amen to a preacher. now notice Nathaniel responds rabbi notice what he says you are the son of God you are the king of Israel so Jesus is the anointed one he's the son and also the king of Psalm 2 what is John doing again he's a wit he's he's a lawyer 
And he's piling witness on top of witness. Nathaniel's witness on top of Philip's witness in verse 45, on top of Andrew's witness in verse 41, on top of John the Baptist's witness in verse 36 and 29. And so Nathaniel acknowledged Jesus to be Israel's king to whom he submits as a true Israelite or believer. Okay? What's interesting is that Jesus didn't refuse to be called Israel's king here, but later on in chapter 615, he did refuse to be made king for their own selfish purposes. And why? He said, my kingdom's not of this world, chapter 18, verse 36. It's also interesting, a bypass meadow here, that the disciples' reverence for Jesus deepened as they got to know him better, and so should ours. We are to be constantly growing in, in, in grace and in knowledge, our understanding of who Jesus is and our reverence for him, our worship of him. Tell that to the Jehovah Witness. Tell that to the Mormon. Jesus received worship. He could not do that if he wasn't who? God, amen. His question in verse 50 is really fascinating. Jesus answered, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? And it expects a what? Yes answer. You will see greater things than these. And so he gives Nathaniel a promise that he's going to see greater things in Jesus' omniscience. In other words, this is just the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And the you will see is in the plural. It's addressed to all the disciples. And so Jesus is shifting Nathaniel's focus from his omniscience to his role as a mediator between God and man, the one who brings heavenly realities down to earth and by whom we are given access to heaven. And so Jesus is the bridge between God and sinners. He's the only way to God, John fourteen six. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he's alluding here in verse 51. He said to him, Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's alluding to Jacob's vision in, in Genesis 28, where Jacob sees the ladder with angels descending and ascending on it. And in and, and heaven, then, what the point in heaven is unattainable as the towers of uh, builders of the of Tower of Babel found out. Heaven is beyond our grasp. But what Jesus is saying is that God has opened heaven wide now that he's come, and it remains open, and now we have a permanent access to God. By what means? Well, not by a ladder that I climb up, but by Jesus who's come what? Down, exactly, the Son of Man who links heaven with earth. Interesting. And, and he is the Father's way to us, and he's our way to the Father. In fact, when you've seen him, you've seen the Father. It's profound to me. And then the angels, we could say much about them. They're ministering to Jesus, but they also minister to us who are going to inherit salvation. Hebrews 1.14. And what's he saying then? The disciples, what they would see is all that Jesus said and did, which climaxed in his crucifixion and his resurrection and his ascension. But we, along with them, will see this fully accomplished when Jesus returns again to welcome the redeemed into his Father's house in heaven. Let me illustrate and close with three questions. A certain woman had lived a long life of very hard work and so busy with her labors that she never had traveled very much. And at the sun, as sun was setting on her life, she's getting ready to die, she was taken to the ocean. And as she looked at it, uh, the apparently boundless expanse, she said, thank God there is enough of something. <laughs> uh, and we apply that to what we have in Christ. We too will say, thank God, there's enough of the Savior. Amen? He's infinite, and his infinite love will unfold for eternity. He will, we will always be surprised. We will always keep growing in the knowledge of his love. Yes, his power and his mercy and his strength, his transcendent, all of these will keep unfolding for all eternity for us. All these infinite experiences are bound up in Jesus' statement to Nathaniel and to us. And the title, the Son of Man, speaks of his humility and his humanity, but also his deity as the King of kings and Lord of lords. 
And yet it may also clarify for Nathaniel not to expect Jesus to set up a physical, political kingdom on earth at his first coming. That's going to happen in his second coming. And like the disciples then, we're going to receive greater proofs of Jesus' lordship as we follow him. Three questions and we're done. What are you seeking? Everybody's seeking something. What are you really after in life? Question, does Jesus know? But he wants you to know. He wants me to know what we're after. Because you see, if it's not really what we should be after, we need to scrap it and have a course correction. (laughs) Amen? (laughs) Secondly, have you met the Messiah? Well, how would you know? Are you longing to spend time with Jesus? What a great question. Are you caught up on the internet? You caught up with movies, entertainment, like Sean Magoon? Or changing the dog's diaper? You know, the things, that, the things that really bug you about life. I'm serious. You're laughing, but until you got to do it, you wouldn't be laughing, I'll tell you. Think about it. Are you longing to spend time with Jesus? Secondly, think of this. Have you met him? Are you finding and telling and bringing people to Jesus? Start with your family, Christian. But go on like Philip and tell your friends, your neighbors, acquaintances. Amen? Tell them to come and see by giving them a Bible, or better yet, ask them if you can read the Bible together. Can we read together? Let the Spirit do His work through the Word. Amen? You read the Bible with them and you pray for them. Amen? And watch what God does. You'd be surprised. I can't, I can't lead anyone to Jesus. You can surely read the Bible with them and pray. Amen? Amen? Unless you can't read, and then you've got to see Sean McGoon, and we'll teach you how to read. Amen? What are you seeking? Have you met the Messiah? And lastly, who do you believe Jesus is? Maybe, maybe today you're doubting, you're skeptical. Will you cast that aside and embrace Christ with true and living faith? And if you really do that, then like Nathaniel, you will never be the same. Amen? Christian, you're a Christian here today. Keep pointing and finding and bringing people to Jesus. And remember that he calls different people in different ways. Amen? So don't get in your rut. Your rut in which you learned by rote. And you learned it and you know it's the way the Romans wrote. That's how you preach, you, 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 you present the gospel, preacher. Well, or great comfort. Let's go through the Ten Commandments. You know you're a sinner. Okay, okay. You can get, ask the Holy Spirit lead you, believe it. Don't get in a rut and you begin to rot because you learned it by rote. What we need is not road or rut or or rot. We need revival, amen, to be led by the Spirit. So be open to how he's going to use you to bring others to him for salvation. Follow Jesus. Guess what? If you follow Jesus, the impact of your life will last how long? Forever. And let me ask you, when you get to heaven, do you think you'll be glad you did? No regrets when you look back at all the time that you fully gave yourself to him and for him. Amen? And you were just responding to him who loved you and gave himself for you. Amen? And that concludes this week's message. We hope you were encouraged and thanks for listening. 